If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On today's podcast, you'll hear an interview with the historian Matthew Jenkinson. Matthew is the author of a new book, Charles I's Killers in America. He spoke to our deputy digital editor, Eleanor Evans, about the lives of the regicides Edward Wally and William Goff, who escaped to the colonies after the Civil War and the execution of the king. Though this book looks largely at the aftermath of um, the lives of these two men after the death of Charles I, would you be happy to give our listeners um, a refresher of their role in the events leading up to the death of the king? In essence, it's worth starting with the civil wars um, themselves. Both Wally and Gough are major military figures. Um, You've got Wally fighting at Marston Moor and and Naseby. Um, Wally, I should say, is, is Oliver Cromwell's cousin, um, and Goff is Wally's son-in-law. So they fight with distinction in the English Civil Wars. Um, once Charles has been defeated, uh, Wally himself ends up guarding uh, Charles I at, at Hampton Court. And uh, during 1647-1648, uh, when we have the 
army prayer meetings um, at, at Putney, the Putney debate, which is preceded by, by a, a, a Puritan prayer meeting. And uh, in 1648, with the Windsor Prayer Meeting, it's uh, William Goff who plays a major role in enthusiastically uh, kind of in a, following his millenarian uh, preoccupation and leading the denunciation of Charles I as, as, a, as a man of blood. And so it, it's it's a it's for Charles. It's downhill from that point uh, toward, towards his execution in, in 1649. Um, so, in essence, from 16 in the 1640s, even before the 1640s, whenever there's action against Charles I, Wally and Gough tend to be around and high-profile figures. What can you tell us about their role in kind of condemning the king? The, the key point is the denunciation of him as a, as a man of blood. Um, and they are the fourth and fourteenth signatories of the death warrant. So they're they're, they're pretty high up. There are fifty nine signatories, so fourth and fourteenth. Um, they're present during Charles's trial. I think uh, one of them only misses one day, um, and then once the death warrant is signed, um, they're marked. So after Charles's execution, uh, as of the sixteen forties. The period of the 1650s with the uh, constitutional experiments, the rump parliament, bare bones, um, the rule of major generals, the protectorate parliaments, Wally and Gough, again, they're there. They're, they're pretty high, high, profile, high profile figures. Um, they're both major generals in 1655 um, in the ill-fated rule of the major generals um, under, under Cromwell. Gough, there's one source that even pinpoints Gough as a potential successor uh, as Lord Protector to, to Oliver Cromwell. It's not a widespread thought, but, uh, view, but there was uh, at least one person who, who was thought that he might be a contender. And their prominent role in the 1650s, as well as with the regicide itself, I mean, that when we get to 1660, there's almost no way they're going to be forgiven uh, at the Restoration. Can we talk about then that prevailing thought that Charles II sought revenge, this bloody revenge for the murder of his father and how you perhaps challenge it in this account? So the historiography of Charles II and and the desire for revenge focuses very much on gory episodes because gory episodes uh, attract your attention. Things like exhuming bodies, the bodies of Cromwell, Arden and Bradshaw. When you look at the reality of the trial of the regicides, those who don't flee, those who are caught... And you look at the discussions, you look at the, the way that the trials proceed in 1660, and the fact that, that relatively few of the people who are found guilty of treason are executed. And fundamentally, I mean, again, Charles is quite savvy. Uh, the Venetian ambassador, Giavarina, even notes that on, on days that, that regicides are due to be executed, Charles removes himself from from Whitehall, from from anywhere near the spectacle. And that's partly to avoid any petitions, and it's partly because he doesn't want to be personally associated um, with this kind of bloodbath. Um, and it, you know, it, 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 the historiography pulls us in two directions. And, and one is that he's a pragmatic, cynical politician of a king. And the other is that he is this ideologically driven you know, rabid, bloodthirsty king who who's desperate for revenge for those who who killed his father, and of course the reality is somewhere down the middle, and it and it and it 
moves more towards the pragmatic as he as the early years of the restoration proceed and it becomes clear that the more that you um revisit the good old cause the more that you give regicides time to time and space to revocalize that cause the more sympathy they're going to get and and the and the, the the less likely you are to to settle the nation um in an effective way the the issue is that once we get into the 16 mid 1660s uh, the religious politics coming much more to the fore. We have the natural disasters um, uh, preoccupying um, uh, king and courtiers. And suddenly catching two or three people in America goes quite far down the priority list, um, especially when you've got the pragmatic side of, of, of keeping your colonies stable uh, comes into it again. However you perceive this this era of retribution, your book does does um, focus on these two lives of Wally and Goff. Um, they flee to America. What can you tell us about um, their actions and the, the choice of going to um, to the colonies as well? Um, yeah, they didn't have to go there. They could have gone to Switzerland, Germany, the Netherlands. Other other regicides did. Um, it's pretty brave to go three thousand miles. You know, ten week journey. Um, on the prudent Mary, they they choose to go there partly because they they have a history of personal contacts, and partly because the the colonies are known to be sympathetic to uh, the good old cause, uh, to the the Cromwellian cause, and they they arrive in um, Charlestown, uh, travel down to Boston and Cambridge, and they're met openly and they're met very warmly by by people who. Um, know who they are. I mean, there's a question. Well, later on, uh, people try to rewrite history and try to question whether the the people like John Endicott, who's the, you know, the governor of Massachusetts Bay, whether they really know who these people are. Um, they knew who they were. And Wally and Goff are travelling quite openly. Well, you could argue that they're met openly because at the time, Wally and Goff aren't fugitives or they're not known to be fugitives. You could argue on the other side that they've turned up in in Charlestown, in Boston, in in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, um, and pe- people would ask the question: Why have they come now? There had already been rumours that the that the um, uh, the Cromwellian era was was over, was was falling back in England. Um, so I don't believe they didn't know who these people were, and they're entertained openly. Um, so they, they spend some, some time there. And it, of course, it takes a while for any um, legal proclamations to come over from London. And then we get into this period when it, the colonial authorities have to decide whether they're going to protect Wally and Goff or not, uh, whether they're going to support them in their travel around um, New England. And uh, the extent to which they're going to implement these you know, orders coming, coming, coming back from Charles I's um, government back in Whitehall. Um, and so it's a pretty long and complicated story, but to cut it short, um, they, after a period in, up in uh, Boston and Cambridge, they, they travel south, they go down through Guildford, they end up in, uh, in New Haven. And it's in New Haven that um, the any attempts to capture them become uh, most kind of pronounced. Then, uh, and they stay in their their famous cave, the Judge's Cave, which is just outside um, the, the, the 
the settlement of New Haven um, up in the hills. And after a period there, they end up traveling north to, to Hadley. Um, they're there in the 1670s. And then to uh, uh, Wally dies in Hadley. And then Goff ends up traveling to Hartford. So they travel, they cover a, a few a few miles along the way. Um, the, the, the extent to which they're being chased is 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 open to question and, and really kind of what I was trying to look at in the book. Um, but they're on the run for 15 years, or, uh, 15 years for, for Wally, 19 years uh, for Goff. Um, and I wondered if we could go into a little more, um, what was it about the colonies in New England specifically, or, or perhaps people there, that made it uh, made those political or spiritual sympathies um, a good a good fit for Wally and Goff. Well, of course, I mean these are Puritan settlements, and Wally and Goff are Puritans. Um, these are settlements that have little sympathy for the Stuart monarchy. If we go right back to the early seventeenth century settlements, these, these are people who are who are leaving England to um, avoid um, kind of Stuart branded religious repression. Of course, they engage in their own form of repression once they get there, but um, they're 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 they're, they're Escaping uh, the kind of thing that the kind of repression that they would have experienced um, under the early Stuarts. There is also the theory; uh, it's a very compelling theory that uh, these Puritans exercise a form of godly republicanism, that they are used to organising their own churches in an independent way, and uh, and it's not an enormous psychological leap to suggest that they could exercise their kind of their secular lives in in an independent way especially the case when you're 3,000 miles away from a government that's meant to be controlling you if they have such an interest. Um, these are also settlements that are uh, often, obviously not always, but, but fa- often founded by um, kind of trading companies who are um, fiercely independent, jealous of their, of their liberty, jealous of their charters, they give them the freedom to trade. Um, and they don't want any encroachment from from the Restoration government. And so anything that signals that kind of encroachment um, uh, becomes very serious. The most obvious example of that with Leet uh, is um, the, the spectre of a general, gov- a general governor being sent over from England, a, a general governor of New England. And there's, a, there's a, a, a warrant sent from Edward Nicholas in Whitehall where if, if you read it, if you read the syntax in the the right way, or the way that you want to read it, um, uh, the way that Leet read it, it, it looked, it sounded like uh, Edward Nicholas, who's one of Charles's secretaries of state, um, is is addressing uh, the present governor of New England, and of course that 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 scares people like Leet, who don't want their their, their you know their proto independence taken away by by this kind of encroaching figure, a figure who comes later on to James II, so it does happen, and it doesn't go very well, but the. Um, in the 1660s, there is this fear that, that the Restoration government is going to have a, a, a greater interest in having a, a much tighter control over, over what the colonies are doing. Partly because, of course, they've been disloyal anyway. In the 1650s, they're famously supportive, sympathetic uh, uh, to Cromwell. Ministers like John Cotton are preaching in defence of, of Cromwell, in, in defence of the regicide. Um, and so, anyway, there's a Puritan colony that they're going to they're going to be sympathetic to Wally and Goff and not, and not particularly sympathetic to Charles II. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The myths that, 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 that rise up about Wally and Goff are energetic and you know, David versus Goliath. 
their adventure stories, their fun, their um, cocking a snook to, to the British government uh, in the way that revolutions had done in the 1770s. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. You mentioned that they weren't always treated like fugitives or um, they didn't always treat themselves as fugitives. But um, as a historian, can you talk about the challenges of, of piecing together that history when inevitably the written record is going to be different if these men are kind of on the run? Yep. Um, fundamentally, it's very difficult to piece together because they don't, they don't write everything down. Um, that said, <laughs> of course, um, Goff did keep a diary for seven years, uh, which is disappeared and we can come back to that um there are letters that exist there's correspondence uh so wally's sister jane hook is married to william hook who corresponds with john davenport who's in new haven who talks to goff so we get this we get these letters going back and forth um from london to, to new haven um it's a challenge they don't write everything down uh we are left with um the flashpoints when when interesting interesting points happen um and proclamations issued or um warrants issued either from london or from the colonial authorities themselves and again we can question the extent to how serious those warrants are whether they're they're paying lip service to things they meant they think they're meant to be doing um to keep charles ii moderately happy um but as, as I say, yeah, over, over 19 years that, that Goff's on the run, a lot of it, you, you can jump for three or four or five years with, with nothing. And um, you, you know that vaguely where they are, the house they probably are in or he is in, but we get a lot of disappearing acts. And so piecing it together was tricky. Um, but I think we got there in the end in trying to work out where that where they are and what they're doing at each point and, and who and who they're talking to and who's who's protecting them as i say you know we end up with, with dozens of names coming into the story and if you put them together and work out their connections there's quite an elaborate web of uh, from boston new haven milford guilford um hartford and hadley individuals who who know each other and who are associated with one another and who are communicating about the regicides keeping them keeping them safe um, the question is, keeping them safe from whom and when? Yeah, that's a that's a, a really interesting point because um, I'd really like to ask uh, what's known about the men who were hunting them. Yeah, so it 
there are, as I said, there are, there are flashpoints. The most famous flashpoint is in 1661. The appointment of, of two kind of bounty hunters called Tem Thomas Kellondon Kellond and Thomas Kirk. Um, one's a merchant, one's a, a ship's captain. And they are sent, appointed, sent to follow Wally and Goff south through the kind of New England wilderness down to down to New Haven. And we get this situation where Kellond and Kirk get quite close. But, but never close enough to Wally and Goff. And that's mainly because they're given the runaround by pretty savvy um, uh, people like William Leap, who's deputy governor of, of Guildford at the time, very synthetic to the regicides, and uh, does pretty much everything in his power to, and, you know, within the law, to put obstacles in, in Kellogg and Kirk's way. And... I mean, this is the most kind of germane moment in, in the Regicide story because that's where the myth, lots of the myths come from because we get them being very, very close, almost catching their prey. Um, we get stories written later that, that, that have them being kind of energetically chasing them through, you know, across bridges and things. They get to New Haven. Um, they are given the runaround. They're delayed by, by the New Haven authorities. And, of course, this has been plenty of time to allow uh, Wally and Goff to... To, to flee uh, to a place of safety out of New Haven. They have two or three um, very, very short, short-term settlements and they end up in, in this cave um, in the hills above New Haven. Um, yes, so I, I, again, I'd love to go back to the cave, but you mentioned there that William Leet or people like uh, Leet were obviously sympathetic to the regicides and you investigate the timeline very thoroughly in your book, but you also went to the cave. What, what, what can you tell us about that? So the, the thing about the cave um, is that it, it's been symbolic of the regicides and therefore symbolic of freedom um, ever since they were resident there in 1661. And over the centuries, it's been a kind of a place of pilgrimage uh, for people celebrating Republican values. You get French revolutionaries going there um, um, after the revolution. The modern history of the cave is a lot more interesting uh, and a lot uh, different from from that kind of uh, lauded history. Um, and I went there, I, when I was researching the book, I was staying in, in Boston and Cambridge um, and and thought naively that I would just take a day trip, um, hire a car, go down uh, with some friends and, and uh, in the same way that we go to National Trust property here, and, uh, you know, there'd be a tea shop and whatever. The, the first problem was that um, it wasn't any maps, not maps that I could find. Um, so we rang the park ranger uh, and found the, uh, the the directions. And then when we got there, of course, you know, there were there was no, there was no tea room. And uh, we ended up parking the car and uh, taking out our cameras um, to find that uh, the people that go there now aren't that interested in in 17th century Puritans, um, but it being three miles away from the town uh, and with very few visitors, it's quite a good place to go uh, if you're 
a couple in love. And there were two such couples when I arrived there and they weren't that happy that we were carrying cameras. <laughs> Is there any other kind of commemoration at the spot? Or? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a plaque on, on one of the, the, the stones. I should say, it's not really a cave. It's a, it's a series of stones, these erratics that have been deposited um, uh, in, with ice melting in the last ice age that, um, that they, they fall conveniently on, on one another to, to leave a gap that is just big enough for two people to sleep. Um, on the floor. Uh, but there is a, a, a small plaque that says um, opposition to tyrants is obedience to God. And that, that was um, placed there by one of the early visitors to the cave. And it's, an, it's a sentiment that's been replicated in the novels that, that, that spring up about the, the regicides as well. So your your book you know, investigates all of these flashpoints, their, their movements um, once they've gone to America. Um, but then the second half of your book really investigates the myths that have sprung up in the following century and since. And, and you write that they became key figures in the birth of modern America and, and they were the, their stories were ripe for distortion in the ideological background of the American Revolution. I, I wonder if you can just give us a sense of why their stories were harnessed in this way. So when post-revolutionary America is, is finding its way as an independent both politically and, and culturally independent nation. They need stories. Nations are built on stories, often mythological stories. Now, one of the most prominent stories of the late 17th century about their colonial history is, is that of, of Wally and Goff. I mean, it, it, it was known by, once we get into the mid-18th century, it becomes, it becomes uh, more widespread. Why does it become particularly popular amongst uh, kind of late 18th century, early 19th century Americans, because they're, as I say, because they, they are symbolic of revolution, they're symbolic of, of liberty. Um, it's kind of crass to suggest that the American Revolution and the English Civil War are the same event or the same kinds of event, but there are writers that do try to do that, and they see their history as being, American history as being quite cyclical in that sense. Um, but one of the reasons why the regicides is 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 so attractive is that they can satisfy kind of anglophilic tastes, you know, just because there's been a revolution doesn't mean that culturally America suddenly breaks off totally from these kind of European antecedents. Um, But they represent something that is actually quite un-English, that they are not welcome in England post-1660. And so they can have an anglophilic taste, but not be so English that they are alienating to, to a, a post-revolutionary American audience. So they're pretty, it's, it's a very useful case study. Also, the myths that, 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 that rise up about Wally and Goff are energetic and you know, David versus Goliath, they're adventure stories, they're fun, they're um, cocking a snook to, to the British government uh, in the way that revolutionaries have done in the 17, 1770s. And so we have uh, the, the, the cave episode which is perhaps um, with Callum and Kirk, it's one of the most popular areas where myths myths develop uh, or stories. And then we also get the the actually much more famous uh, example of the Angel of Hadley from from sixteen the mid sixteen seventies, probably sixteen seventy six. Um, which again, it, it's a it's a kind of well, it's not kind of it's it's a heroic example of. Uh, a military figure appearing from nowhere in um, King Philip's War when the settlement of Hadley is under attack 
and it looks like the inhabitants are, are going to be decimated um, by the indigenous populations who are who are surrounding and um, attacking Hadley. And this um, grey bearded ancient figure appears, uh, coordinates the defence of the of of the settlement, and uh, and, and disappears again after that. Um, and we get this this figure of the grey champion, the um, this angel appearing from from nowhere. And again, these are stories that are entertaining their fun and um, they are symbolic of, of preserving liberty. And so Wally and Goff, and especially, especially Goff, become kind of honorary founding fathers, kind of founding grandfathers. Um, they're, they're, they're doing things that revolutionaries would like to be doing or have been doing, but 100 years beforehand. Conveniently, a hundred years beforehand, and so this the idea of the cyclical nature of American history comes along, and so every time you get um, uh, you know, 1776, 1876, you get people looking back to the events that have happened exactly a hundred years previously, and the Angel of Hadley is you know one of these fantastic stories that that fits very neatly into a into a narrative of um, colonists who are always jealous of their liberty and always going to protect their liberty, whether that liberty is being threatened by the indigenous population who want to take their lives or whether it's liberty that's threatened by the British government who want to raise taxes. Are there any um, particularly absurd stories that you came across with them as figures of folklore? Well, the, the ones in New Haven just don't tally chronologically. Um, as I mentioned earlier, they have... The most famous is they have Wally and Goff hiding under the neck bridge outside New Haven as Kelland and Kirk pass over them. It just doesn't fit because Wally and Goff had already left quite a long time before, so there would be no reason for them to, to, to pass. Um, the most absurd has um, one of the regicides in Boston uh, taking on a, a kind of a pseudo-duel in the marketplace and, and, and fighting somebody with a mop and a piece of cheese. <laughs> Um, and it, it just doesn't tally, partly because it, it, it doesn't sound particularly compelling. Um, but also it, the, the, the timing of that, um, of that myth would be around the time that it's known that Wally and Goff are, are fugitives and that they're preparing on, on their way from, uh, from Boston and Cambridge down to, down to New Haven. And so it just doesn't ring true to me that, um, that somebody who was going into hiding would do something so obviously public uh, and, and that would go, that would attract attention from any number of people um, in the area. Um, a lot of these these myths, they, they kind of centre around kind of military-type behaviour. And that's, of course, because Wally and Goff have fought in the English Civil Wars with this, such distinction and because they've been major generals in the 1650s. Um, if we look at what Wally and Goff, or especially Goff, are actually writing... Um, during the 1660s and 70s, it bears almost no relation to the, the kind of military activity they've been engaged in beforehand. Um, they're very much, you know, as I put in the book, Puritans prevaricating over psalms. Mm. Um, then these are, you know, perhaps with the exception of the Angel of Hadley, which is, you know, one-off um, under quite specific and stressed circumstances, you don't get the kind of behaviour that, that these myths want us to believe. Why do they grow up? Well, they grow up because if, if we're going to have Wally and Goff as kind of proto-founding fathers, 
they have to be seen to be saying, doing something a lot more interesting than writing a diary about what psalms they've been thinking about that day. Mm. They've got to be, you know, militaristic and thrusting and, and heroic. Someone that you explore in your book as having given uh, Wally and Goff this this extra life in the 18th century or this new life in the 18th century is Ezra Stiles. What can you tell us about Stiles? So Ezra Stiles takes over from Thomas Hutchinson as um, the, you know, the, the earliest historian of the regicides. Hutchinson mentions them in his history of Massachusetts Bay, but Hutchinson being Lord of the British government wants to portray the regicides as being kind of strangers, kind of outcasts in New England. And he wants to portray the colonies of New England as being loyal to Charles II. Um, and therefore, you know, he, he glosses over New Haven uh, and places who were overtly disloyal to Charles. Um, once Ezra Stiles takes on this kind of historical baton, Ezra Stiles is, is president of Yale. He's, he's based in New Haven and he's the first to do a, to write a full-length study um, of the regicides in America. Now, he concedes that because there's not much documentary evidence, and so people like Hutchison are going on documentary evidence, he's got to use oral histories. Now, oral history, as we all know, is, is fraught with problems in that um, he is taking soundings from usually grandchildren or people, acquaintances of people who once knew per somebody who had heard that something happened. And so Ezra Stiles writes down these, and that's where these myths come from, uh, from people who are very proud of their protection of the regicides or their family family association or their local association with protecting Wally and, Wally and Goff. Stiles is also writing um, at a time of... of, of Revolution. He's taught. He's writing um, in the 1780s, 1790s. Uh, sorry, researching and then writing. And of course, so we're, we're post American Revolution. We're, we're post um, French Revolution, and we're at a time when uh, American uh, figures are trying to work out the most appropriate way to to found this new republic. How many vestiges of monarchism to have, and so it fits perfectly. Uh, for Ezra Stiles to to tell the story of Wally and Goff as um, as a story about liberty, about republicanism, proud republicanism, uh, as a I think it's almost a warning about reverting too much to to monarchism um, back again in, in the 1790s and the early 1800s um, that that baton's taken up by other writers, um, but Stiles is the first to to portray them as kind of heralds proto-American revolutionaries from an earlier age. And that baton is taken up by the, the novelists that, we, we, that we've already talked about. What was it that brought you, you to their history? Was it their, their real endeavours or, or was it that kind of folklore, that legacy that they have? I came to it totally by accident because I, I was working on a very different project. I was working on a project on, on Charles II's court culture. And uh, as, as part of that, I was looking at what was happening in London in the early years of the Restoration, looking at the coronation. And it quickly became clear that you couldn't look at the coronation without looking at what else was happening on the streets of London around that time. And that's when you get the, the trials and executions of the regicides. Uh, while I was looking at that, I was looking at copies of, of Charles I's death warrant. And uh, you know, being a studious DPhil student at the time, I uh, just checked that all the names were there. And, and of course, one of them wasn't. It was that John Dixwell's name was missing. And John Dixwell was a 
the third regicide, who um, uh, at the restoration flees to Hanau, but ends up in, in New England and meets with uh, Wally and Goff in uh, 1665. And so, um, you know, I, I, I saw that and thought, that's oh, interesting. Uh, I wonder what happens to the regicides who, who went to America and shelved it for a few years while I went back to the first project. Um, and it was one of those situations that the more the more I uncovered, the more I uncovered. And it was a project that kind of did, it started out as, well, what were they doing? How long were they there? Where were they staying? Um, to actually, well, how were they received um, in, in the uh, succeeding decades and centuries? Because as I think the book hopefully shows, their story is, is as interesting for how they are perceived in the 300 years after their time in, in America as for their own story. That was Matthew Jenkinson. Matthew's book, Charles I's Killers in America, is available now published by Oxford University Press. You can find more on Civil War history and a wealth of other topics at our website, which is historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Thursday when Sam Willis will be speaking about the Battle of Trafalgar. 